The Big Electron. Hello. On KCOU Columbia, 88.1 FM. I'm Anahita. I'm Madeline. And uh, welcome to the end of our St. Patrick's Day Engineering Week of Fun. <laughs> so today we have two guests on the show, um, two engineers, if you will. Dr. Alina Zare, who's a professor in electrical engineering, electrical and computer engineering here at Mizzou, and Dr. Taylor Glenn, founder of... Um, Precision Silver here in Columbia. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. We're happy to have you. Um, So you guys are both engineers. I want to start by asking you uh, how you got into science and engineering and where you are today. Okay. So, well, I guess I can't remember an exact moment when I decided I wanted to get into computer engineering, but... Probably a big influence was in the mid-80s. My parents bought a IBM PC awesome. for our home computer. And so I spent a lot of time on that computer. And I think I first learned how to program on it. And, and so that was probably a big influence. Just on your own? Did you have any you know, tutorials or anything? Or just is it tinkering? Yeah, there's no Google or YouTube yeah. to teach you how to do it. <laughs> right. It was pretty rare, I think, back then to have a home computer. So it was kind of amazing that they bought one. Yeah. Um, but I did have, I mean, my mother was an accountant, so she spent a lot of time, that was one of the first fields that picked up computers, sure. personal computers. So she, she had some um, experience with it. We, I also had a family member that was a computer programmer. And so he taught me a few things, but mostly it was just spending a lot of time on it and messing around. Wow. And this is probably before there's lots of, you know, fun games. And so what, what were you oh, there doing? Were games. There I were games. Spent, there okay. were games. I spent a lot of time playing games. Okay. What was your favorite? I, uh, there were a lot. I, one I remember in particular was, it was a really cheesy game called Captain Comic. And you had to have this little comic superhero guy run through a scene. That's Sounds awesome. pretty great. Yeah, well, speaking of games, actually, I think that's the reason that I got into computer engineering. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid, of course, playing a lot of video games and also reading the video game magazines and probably picking up that, oh, hey, this game was written some computer language. Mm -hmm. And I distinctly remember I was 15 and going through a a bookstore and seeing computer programming books. I'm like, I want to make video games. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I picked up some computer programming books and started teaching myself back then. That's cool. I feel like that's how a lot of people get into it. They want to make video games. And then what do you think happens? Do they decide that's, you know. Turns out it's really hard. Is it? (laughs) So so. you've tried. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, certainly. And even up through undergrad, I, you know, kind of did a lot of courses that kind of Mm -hmm. worked in that area. Uh, There are plenty, many different roads you can go down. Even in that, there's the computer graphics part of it, the AI Mm -hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, making the game engines. It's there's lots even of even specialties. Interaction. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but I ended up going a different route than video games, and you know, I don't have any objection to video games, but I <laughs> don't really play too many anymore. 
So why don't you tell us a little bit about your um, education? Where did you go? How did you uh, build your educational pedigree? Oh, well, uh, mine's pretty straightforward. I went to undergraduate at the University of Florida, and I stayed all the way through to my PhD. Okay. Um, straight. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also a Florida graduate, too. <laughs> Alina and I uh, worked in the same lab in the PhD times. I took a break. I went undergrad and master's mm -hmm. there at Florida, left and had a small engineering company for a while, sold out of that, and then went back to grad school. Hmm. And you guys worked in the same group, correct? We did, but our, we, our PhDs were at different times. So mm -hmm. I, while I was working on my PhD, it was when Taylor was starting his first company. Um, and then I was just finishing up when, when he came back for his PhD. Right, but shared the same advisor. Right. who recruited me to come back when he <laughs> found out I was looking for something new to do. Mm -hmm. So did you know before, um, I guess, grad school or, or before, yeah, before grad school that Alina, you're going to be in academia and Taylor, you're going to be in industry? Was that something you just always knew you were going to do? I wasn't completely sure, but that was definitely a goal. Mm -hmm. It's something um, I was thinking about and had in mind for a long time. Um, and... You know, I, I don't remember exactly when I started pursuing it, but, you know, I'll sometimes come across notes from grad school and I, I'd taken seminars and classes that mm -hmm. would have prepared me to be a faculty member much earlier than I actually remember starting <laughs> working towards it. So um, it was something that I was shooting for for a while. And I always kind of saw myself as my own boss and having my own companies and... Mm -hmm. I've always just gone that route. Taylor, I've got a question sure. for you. Um, so you graduated with your master's, you said, and mm -hmm. then were in the real world, quote unquote, for a while, <laughs> and then decided to come back. So what was it that you thought you would acquire from your PhD that you were currently lacking? I mean, obviously you were pretty successful at just your master's. Sure. There's, it's, there were several times actually working as an engineer um, where you'd come across problems where I didn't actually know how to handle it. Okay. And that was not necessarily the reason that I went back for a PhD, but I feel like I definitely feel a difference now that most problems I work on, even though I, I mean, when you're working at the PhD level, you're, you're at the boundaries, you know, you don't, you, you don't know the answer. Otherwise it's not new or exciting. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, not really doing science. Um, uh, but, you know, so that has certainly changed, you know, that I have, feel like I have a much better grasp on things now. Cool. So um, I guess I have a question about, I guess, what are your specific research topics? Let's start there. Sure. So my area is machine learning. So essentially that's trying to make algorithms to get computers to learn. Um, and when doing that, I, the applications I focus on tend to be learning from sensor data. Um, so this is a so sensor data can mean a huge variety of things. So some of our projects are looking at ground penetrating radar and metal detector to do landmine explosive object detection. Some of it's looking at synthetic aperture sonar to mm -hmm. um, understand the seafloor, like mm -hmm. where is there sand ripple, where is there seagrass. Um, some of it's looking at hyperspectral imagery that's like flown on planes over the ground to do target detection applications or to map the area, scene understanding. 
Um, so there's a huge variety of sensors, and our lab focuses on taking sensor data, developing computer algorithms that can learn from that sensor data and understand it autonomously. Yeah, so you don't teach them how to learn. Well, you don't teach them what to look for. You just teach them like, yes, you're right, no, you're not right, and then whatever method they figured out yeah, so is what you go with. That's the idea, and the, but the how to what extent you guide the algorithms varies based on the algorithm. But um, in supervised machine learning, the essential idea is you have a bunch of examples mm -hmm. of things and you have them labeled. So for example, if you wanted to teach a computer to learn how to recognize cats in mm -hmm, internet mm -hmm. photos, you'd show it <laughs> a whole bunch of photos of cats and say, there's a cat in this picture, and a whole bunch of photos of not cats and say, there's no cats here. And then you develop an algorithm that can take that sort of information and figure out when there's a cat and when there's not. So mm -hmm. when it gets a test data point or an image where you don't know whether it's a cat or not, hopefully you've trained it well enough to be able to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Cool. So I guess that's a really clear example of cat or not cat, but it sounds like with some of your projects, there can be a lot of gray lines. Is there... Well, actually, cat and not cat is probably a really hard problem. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's, it's there's a whole um, area to it is how you label the imagery, how mm -hmm. you break it up, um, and how you present that data to the algorithm. Mm -hmm. um, so a, a big component of machine learning is what they call feature extraction or feature under learning. Um, and so that's, you're going to get raw data but you want to put that in the way that's going to be the easiest for an algorithm to be able to differentiate between what you're looking for. Um, and, and feature extraction is not always straightforward. There's more kind of an art to it. I don't know if Taylor yeah, would agree. For sure, yeah. And, and that's going to be very application-driven. So um, you really got to understand the problem so you can pull out what's the most useful information. And then you develop an algorithm that can learn from those features. Right. I guess I feel like we should expand a little bit on we're talking about this idea of what is machine learning. And, you know, I kind of think about this like we've talked about this classification problem, you know, mm -hmm. how to make a computer tell things apart. Um, and but there's many ways you might do that. You might think of a computer program where you're just by hand, you just come up with a bunch of rules mm -hmm. and you say, ah, well, you know, if if this thing is is green, and we're looking for, you know, shamrocks versus not shamrocks. Sure. Well, then you may say, okay, if the green value is greater than 0.5, we call it a shamrock. And if it's mm. less than that, it's not a shamrock. Yeah, but then you get a cucumber in there and you're right. really... And mm -hmm. then it's, <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. But in general, the kind of things that you do in machine learning are, you know, given those sets of examples mm -hmm. and some framework in which the rules are, are set up, uh, it kind of figures out what values, maybe that value should have been 0.9 because shamrocks are really, really green. And, you know, so that way you can kind of reduce your misclassifications. Yeah, so mm -hmm. rules could be one model. So, that, so a lot of machine learning systems are set up with, first you do feature extraction, feature selection, and then you have some assumed model that you try and from data fit parameters to that model. So the model could be a set of rules maybe you want to learn the thresholds or how these rules are combined um, but they could be you know statistical models where you're fitting parameters to that as well and so selecting the right model is also very difficult and then you have to fit the parameters to it which has its own art 
Hmm. Um, and so those are, I would say, the three main components, feature extraction, model selection, and then parameter estimation. So Taylor, why don't you tell us about your research? So I get to work with drones. So that's <laughs> something that I, I've been interested in for a long time, and I, it's just incredibly fun. I play around with flying robots. Um, so I've found ways to apply these for agricultural problems and specific, specifically I'm targeting uh, things in the agricultural research world where researchers, agronomists, plant scientists, these kind of people are interested about particular quantities about plants in their field. Uh, so we go out and we measure how big they are, how tall they are, how green they are, uh, all kinds of these properties. So I've been figuring out ways to make the flying robots that can go out and collect <laughs> the data. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's, that's fun, but that's, I guess, not from where my, you know, educational background is, although mm -hmm. I have engineering degrees and I can do all the wiring and that kind of stuff. Uh, but then doing the actual extraction of the information from imagery mm -hmm. and then coming up with algorithms to extract that in you know, an automated way mm -hmm. so that we can automate this process. You know, the robots go out there and fly automatically, uh, cover the, the, the area automatically, get the images, then we throw all that into the computer and it automatically spits out, yes, you've got 150 plants there and this one's a meter and a half tall, 1.25, you know, mm -hmm. just work through it all. And that's nice because you automatically are cutting down on human error or, you know, it, right. sometimes as scientists, we get a little bit too excited about, you know, what we're doing. And, Absolutely. Oh, I'm pretty sure it's working. It's got to be working. <laughs> well, the robot doesn't say it is. And so you're using these machine learning techniques to count and all of that and identify? To some extent, um, it's not necessarily all machine learning. Mm -hmm. And certainly a lot of the work is more straightforward, uh, just image analysis, image processing work. Uh, but there are certainly parts of it where it's give it some labeled examples and try to get it to, given that I've given, given it those examples, that it can repeat that process in the future so that I don't have to come up with the method by hand. Uh, it tends to be that when you make these kind of hand-done methods, mm -hmm. is uh, they tend not to work out so well because... Uh, when you start coming up, say if you wanted to do a rule-based method, the, your rules tend to fail because mm. uh, you usually haven't thought of all the cases. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Like you said, when a cucumber shows up, mm -hmm. <laughs> how right. do you know if it's a four-leaf clover? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, so when you're dealing with imagery, like don't, isn't that a, just a ton of data? Oh yes, <laughs> big it's, data. It's lots of fun, and yeah, this is a certainly a, a large area in computer science right now. Is this what they call big data, and that's carrying over to I guess all the sciences really. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Everybody's trying to to get their finger in that yeah area. It's very buzzy right now. Yeah. Uh -huh. But uh, we like you know, I, I guess you could say that one application area that Alina and I both work in is what's called remote sensing. You know, so sensors that are not directly touching things, they're, mm -hmm. they're remote from it. So like you said, like the airplanes that are driving by taking photos or drones flying by and taking photos. Right, but also the synthetic aperture sonar, mm -hmm. you know, that's mm -hmm. not touching the seafloor. That's it's true. flying <laughs> underwater over things <laughs> and ground penetrating radar, you're 
holding that above the ground. Cool. So it's also remote. So I have a question. So do you get to go out and like collect the data? Like, do you have field work in yeah. computer engineering? Do you do you, you get to go out? Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly I, I'm out in the field quite often, and I know Alina has done field collections as well. So, you know, remote sensing tends to be an outdoor kind of mm -hmm. thing. So if you're working with collecting the data, then you get to do that. Uh, and that's probably a little bit uncommon among computer engineers. Hmm. Uh, I think m most of it, for me, in my lab, is we're given a bunch of data. Yeah. Hmm. Occasionally, we have the opportunity to go and collect it. I think Taylor has a lot more experience with that. Um, but it's interesting conducting a data collection. So if you're doing data collections specifically to develop a machine learning algorithm, then you start venturing into areas of experimental design. Mm -hmm. So I want to detect you know, a particular object on the ground. If I put them too close together, then it's gonna be too easy, right? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, pretty much anywhere in that area, I'm gonna hit on a particular target, right? right. And so you have this trade-off of how you lay things out over an area to collect it. Mm -hmm. um, but you also want large areas in which there's no target, so you can um, measure what we call a false alarm rate, mm -hmm. make sure you're not calling things target when there aren't targets. Mm -hmm. um, so, there's, so there's a big whole area of experimental design that goes into setting up data mm -hmm. collections as well beyond just... And that's really an interesting area that, that perhaps from our shared uh, research background that was uh, emphasized to us, you know, mm -hmm. how to properly do real-world experiments and collections on this kind of data, you know, that's, that's really a bit of an art, and you often, I don't know that I've ever seen a class on it. The stats departments will often have experimental design, but that's often how to conduct their kinds of experiments, which mm -hmm. are different from, say, target detection classification experiments. Because you have physical limitations, right? So if you're trying to detect something among many backgrounds, um, you're going to have only a certain amount of area in the background and wherever you're doing your collection. Um, and each, as you expand the area, that costs more money, right? Mm -hmm. You're renting a plane, you're, you have people operating the sensors. And so given now budgetary constraints, you can't collect an infinite amount of data, which is what you really want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think I brought up remote sensing. In order to say that remote sensing, we like to say, is the original big data. <laughs> so it, it is very large volumes of data, you know, and what you, we can do now with, with drones is just incredible. You know, I mm -hmm. will go out in within an hour of flying and collect 100 gigabytes of imagery. Wow. And that's wow. And then take it back and, you know, run it on a large computer, but still just a large workstation computer overnight. And so when you say drones, you mean these toy drones, essentially, that... You know, everyone's getting for Christmas They're lately. They're toys now. Well, they're toys they now, but... Well, it's interesting. They started out as hobbyist mm -hmm. devices, you know, toys. Uh, but there are certainly professional-grade versions of all these things, bigger, better, stronger, more reliable. Mm -hmm. uh, the things that I work with, you know, tend to be in the multi-thousand dollars of range kind of for the equipment... Uh, but this is orders of magnitude less expensive than a manned aircraft. Right. So mm -hmm. it's, it's actually much more accessible. And um, so 
a lot of times when you think about aerial imagery, most people are thinking about manned aircraft and remote sensing. But drones can get a lot closer. So mm -hmm. you can get a lot higher mm -hmm. resolution yeah. than you ever could before. So not only are you getting data more cheaply, but you're also getting a lot more high quality data mm -hmm. than you could have before. Right. You, you can, I say you, you fly lower and slower mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. these multi-rotor helicopters than you ever could with a, with a manned aircraft of any sort. Uh, and, and so for remote sensing, you're just getting higher fidelity data. Mm -hmm. And so uh, part of what this is enabling is for people like me to start new companies to do new kinds of analysis and new kinds of data capture that we just have not been able to do before. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of pioneering that area. Mm -hmm. But every, you know, there's still a space for aerial imagery, right? Because mm -hmm. you're never going to be ever, ever able to cover as much area with a drone mm -hmm. as you would mm -hmm. with a manned aircraft. Right. And, and a manned aircraft versus is not a satellite. Gonna, right, versus a satellite image. Mm. Right. Yeah, so. Which is, again, broader area. But less, less, but res less resolution. Less, yeah, less resolution. Hmm. Much more expensive. I guess along this line of, like, lab work, I have a kind of dumb question. Do you guys get to eat in your labs? <laughs> oh, my gosh. We don't, and it drives me nuts. I have to leave coffee cups outside and stuff uh -huh. like that, but, like, you're in a computer lab. Oh, well, there is certainly coffee in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I ate probably most of my meals in front of my computer. <laughs> I'm really jealous. That sounds like a blessing and a curse. Yeah. It's like, you don't have to leave, but you also can't get away. <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. I'm, I imagine that that's a, a big thing with any science is your... You're in your lab all the time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You're you gotta be what comfortable. You're doing, and you're doing it, but perhaps for people who, who have some kind of restrictions, that actually gets you out the side for a break. Yeah, yeah, it's just so like, I don't know. When I think of a lab, I have a very specific image. It's my lab in particular, which is different than any other lab in the chemistry building, mm -hmm. which would be different from any lab in biology. And then, and then I'm like, oh yeah, computer lab. It's absolutely a type of lab. Yeah. It's in the name, right? It's in the name, yeah. Like, but it is. They it's, probably it's get to eat in there. <laughs> pedestrian environment. It's some people sitting at computers that don't look too awfully different from anybody else's computers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Cool. All right, well, we're going to go on a musical break, and then we'll be back with some more from Taylor and Alina. Welcome back to The Big Electron on KCAU Columbia 88.1. We're here with Dr. Alina Zare and Dr. Taylor Glenn. Talking engineering today. Yeah, computer right. engineering. Computer engineering. So that is actually the topic of my next question. So computer science versus computer engineering. Does it matter? Are they the same? It, there, It's a continuum of things that are all done on computers. Okay. But it, it is tough to draw a line between what... There are certainly things that are definitely computer science. So like what would that be? Uh, things like, you know, theory of computation, you know, what things are, are computable uh, is various classical computer science, mm -hmm. data structures, those kinds of things. But like theory of computation is, is kind of this, uh, you know, I like to think of it like back in the 40s, some guys sitting around going, is there a math problem so hard that a computer couldn't do it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so that, those are the computer scientists. Well, and so that, and that's actually one of the, some of the interesting results out of fundamental computer science, mm -hmm. or that it turns out there are math problems so hard that no computer could ever do them. Really? So wow. I didn't know that. It, you know. But people can do yeah. them? No, no. The, the, Just that they can't be done. So like the, 
a classical one, the traveling salesman problem. This is, I'm sorry, digressing a bit into this, but, <laughs> but this is, say you had a list of, of all the cities in the U.S., and you had from each city how far it was to every other city in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And a salesman had to start at one city and go to every other city without ever visiting any, anyone twice and then get back to where he started. And you want to find the best possible way to do that. So you can just brute force. You can try all the combinations of doing that. Sure. But it turns out that for each city that you add, that effectively that problem doubles in the amount of computer time it would take to compute the answer. Mm. Okay. So once you start getting millions of cities, mm-hmm. it would take you longer than the age of the universe to compute the answer to that problem. Wow. So like, even if our computers just keep getting faster and faster and faster, it's still just going to take way too long. Right. We would just never be able to compute. Wow. So there's the a lot of work in approximation algorithms. How can we come up with a good answer without doing the brute force, without trying uh-huh. every possible solution? Right. So, so that's, that's kind of in the computer science realm. You know, those are kind of some fundamental computer science-y kind of questions. Uh, and more in the engineering side, there might be, you know, how do we design the computers? Uh, you know, like the hardware components mm-hmm. would be a lot more computer engineering oriented. So okay. I guess when you get into there, though, that's when the electrical engineering starts to creep in, right? It's certainly a right. part of it. And all these things are very much related. Yeah. So there's there's... Definitely a spectrum. So the example I like to often say is you can have um, tall people and short people, mm-hmm. but you can't draw a line of when someone is, becomes tall. Becomes <laughs> tall, right? There's some people that are mm-hmm. certainly tall, and there's some people that are certainly short. But there's a whole bunch of people that are kind of in between, and there's a spectrum, right? And it's hard to draw that line. So it's the same with computer science and computer engineering. There's this gradient, and you can't mm-hmm. draw a crisp line between them, but there are fields that are definitely one and definitely the other. Right. Would, would you say that either of you are definitely tall or definitely computer engineers? <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely in the intersection. Mm. So, um, For sure. I, I'm, I probably tend more towards the engineering side, although, you know, the, the machine learning aspects of things are very mathematical, mm-hmm. which you might say that's more computer science-y. But, you know, again... But then it's, it's also very applied, which is a little bit more engineering-oriented. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, there's a, so to, to think about... impossible to draw the line. Yeah, I like to think <laughs> of this, you know, well, engineering as a science. You know, there's this... I, my kind of colloquial definition of science is you know, how do we expand the things we know, right? It's mm-hmm. this, this process by which we get new knowledge. I mean, there's, we have knowledge, and to get more of it, we use science as a verb. We do science, <laughs> and we get new knowledge. So engineering as a science at, you know, at, at a university, you know, it's figuring out how to build new machines to solve these new problems. Um, whereas computer science may not technically have a machine there. It... Cool. But it's all done with computing, computation on computers. So they're all kind of related. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not too scary. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit more about um, different types of machine learning? We we delved into if you tell a computer a leprechaun. Uh, <laughs> now I'm mixing up uh-huh. my St. Patrick's Day things. <laughs> four-leaf clover is a four-leaf clover. Then... Um, 
Is it a four-leaf clover or cucumber? Mm -hmm. You said that that's a specific kind of machine learning, right? Right. So supervised machine learning. So that's when you have data paired with labels um, and you have a training process where you use data that you've labeled to learn an algorithm that can take now unlabeled data and produce the same kind of labels. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's also areas like unsupervised machine learning, which is essentially you have training data that has no labels and you're trying to figure out what's a good um, organization or understanding of the data. So is there some true structure to that data Mm -hmm. um, without having anything to guide you? Hmm. with that so so the the canonical example of unsupervised learning is what we call clustering and so okay. this is uh given a, a bunch of data samples mm-hmm. uh you so like a handful of grass <laughs> one of these is a four-leaf clover <laughs> yeah okay so yeah given given a handful of samples and maybe we did this feature extraction we talked about where mm-hmm. we measured the number of uh, petals on these plants. Mm -hmm. And so that was our feature. And so our data points are a bunch of the number three and then maybe a small handful of the number four. Mm -hmm. So if you plotted those, you may see, oh, we've got a bunch of samples around three and a couple around four. And a clustering algorithm, if it was good, you would hope that it would come up and say, aha, I've found two clusters in your data, one where everything is three, one where everything is four. Oh, I see. So it's just really grouping the data you have by some parameter. Right. And and that can be difficult because you could have a set of data where multiple groupings make sense. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you could have, for some reason, I keep on thinking of cats. You could have pictures <laughs> of cats and maybe... Um, you have all different kinds of cats, and one clustering would be by species or by type of mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. of animal. Lions and tigers are grouped together, um, but maybe you want to cluster it by color. So all the white cats are clustered, and mm-hmm. all the orange cats are clustered. Um, or you could have, you know, wild like large cats versus small domestic cats. And so there's lots of groupings that would make sense in different contexts, um, and without some guidance, which is against the whole core of unsupervised machine learning. (laughs) It's hard to know what the right answer is. But the computer goes ahead and finds all these similarities? Yes, so actually, so that's a lot of the algorithm design. Um, So you pick a model and a way of comparing data points to learn this underlying structure. And the model and the way you do your comparison of features is really gonna guide how it groups them. And so although we're saying we're not providing labels, we are providing guidance in the models we're assuming when we do algorithm development. Okay. So, but I guess one thing that we haven't said is is that most of the time you're not applying this to problems where you know the answer or that you could even look at the data and and see this answer because if you could and it was easy, there'd be no point in doing this. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's crazy to me though that there's no... Well, um, what you're saying is kind of reminding me what people talk a lot about um, when you talk about phylogenies. So, you know, we have this pretty clear cut. Um, so that's like kingdom phylogeny. Yeah, all that yeah, stuff. So you say, well, you know, hu- it goes humans <laughs> and then there's monkeys and then you go further back and then we're related to dogs and other mammals. Mm-hmm. But um, apparently, like, you know, that's all based on a certain set of classifications. And then once you get into things that are more closely related, it's like, well, 
this set of graphs compared to that set of graphs, you know, how are they related? If we look at it based on this set of parameters, then we think these two are closest related, A mm -hmm. and B. Whereas if we look at it based on the enzymes inside them, then B and C are more closely related. Right, exactly. And, and so, we don't know the answer. Right, and so those items you pick to compare that would result in different clusterings, that would be our feature extraction phase. So what okay. features are we going to queue on and how are we going to compare those features? So even though multiple things could be grouped together, what we look at when we do that, we're making an assumption of what mm -hmm. should be paired together. So how unsupervised does the machine have to be for it to be unsupervised machine learning? Can you can't you, look at it. You can't look at it at all. It has to completely be on its own. I mean, it's can shy. you can you do things like the feature? Um, but, I mean, you have to. So they call it unsupervised learning, but there is a there is some sort of feature extraction. Mm -hmm. and now there's there's a whole area in doing autonomous feature extraction in which the algorithms also learn what features they should be using. Um, but you're going to in inject information into those algorithms, again, based on what models you use to do the comparison of the methods. So at some point, you're putting in some information for mm -hmm. it to go off of. Mm -hmm. But you're not doing it directly by labeling things sure. at the offset. Right. And it's kind of a, a question of just what is your problem? What are you trying to get done? Uh, you know, are you trying to just have it give you some richer understanding of your data set, perhaps in, in this uh, biological sense? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, there are other applications of this. Maybe you want to, uh, the one I'm thinking of is a dimensionality reduction where... Or a, a popular one is like a, a recommender system. So, so what's a recommender system? Like net, when you go on Netflix and oh. you've seen movies and it recommends other movies to mm -hmm. you, it may have, I don't know, I don't recall exactly how the recommender system works, but you could imagine they cluster users mm -hmm. on how similar their viewing profiles are. They say, oh, in this cluster, all these people like this movie, mm -hmm. so you might like it as well. Or Pandora, when you listen yep. to music, mm -hmm. it'll recommend... And so a lot of those are unsupervised methods because you're not, you do give ratings, but it's not as direct saying, you know, these are the movies I would want to watch and mm -hmm. I would not want to watch these. Hmm. Cool. I always wondered how Netflix did that. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> cool. Yeah, well, they had a, it was a big competition. I don't know if you were aware of this. Oh. They were trying to improve their recommender system mm -hmm. and they offered a million dollar prize. Wow. To whoever could get, I believe it was a 10% gain in the, accuracy wow. of their recommender system. Do you know if someone won? It was a, a group that split the prize. Okay. Because, uh, so there were several groups, since this was such a big deal about maybe 10 years ago now in, in the machine learning field when this went on, uh, the, a couple people had different approaches. And so they got together and formed a super group where they kind of pooled their answers from the two different algorithms mm -hmm. to have the best possible answer. And then they split the prize. So cool. this is this whole idea of what we call algorithm fusion, uh, data fusion, algorithm fusion. So you might develop many algorithms with different underlying assumptions and models, and then your best answer is some combination of them. Hmm. Cool. And like these recommender systems are so clearly different across different platforms. So like Amazon, I buy a battery and then yeah. it recommends batteries for six months. Yeah. But like Netflix will give me different things. New so things. I guess I, I just never really thought about that 
Yeah. There has to be a way to classify what you like. And, and you know, Amazon just is like, oh, you like batteries. <laughs> Here are all of the batteries. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing they always complain about with Amazon's system, right? Is, is there's just really a bad assumption there in that you're going to want something that you've already bought. Mm -hmm. And, you know, objectively you're like, well, that doesn't really pass the, the smell test. That's just Although I always, like, I buy laundry detergent again when I run out. So sometimes it yeah, works. Sometimes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But that happened to me when I was buying a, a dishwasher and I was like, no, believe me, I don't need more dishwashers. <laughs> Thank you. Right. <laughs> okay. So we've talked about supervised and unsupervised. Were there other types of machine learning? Yeah. So now there's things like semi-supervised. So okay. It's a hybrid, right? Oh, you boy. have some things that are labeled, but you also want to leverage all the unlabeled data. So getting labeled data is really expensive and time consuming mm -hmm. and challenging, right? So some people... Some problems, if you could get people to look at the data, you can get labels. So people may use... Um, so that's like reCAPTCHA, right? Right. Oh, it's right. Like we talked about that a few or, weeks ago. Um, Amazon Mechanical Turk, you could use that oh, yeah. okay. and try and say, okay, well, anyone that could look at this, if they know what we're trying to classify, they could provide labels. Um, the challenge in my area in particular is we're looking at non-visual imagery or mm -hmm. data that people are not used to looking at. Mm -hmm. So you really need experts Mm -hmm. Look at it, or you need some other sort of ground truth to be able to provide those labels. This isn't going to be a citizen science, though. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, it's going to be difficult. You'd mm -hmm. have to put a lot of effort into figuring out how we could present this to make use of um, non-experts in labeling. Um, so, so now if you, if you need to have an expert looking at the data, now you have a lot fewer people doing it. It's a lot more expensive, mm -hmm. um, and you're going to get less data labeled. And one thing that's true across all machine learning is the more data you have, the better. Mm -hmm. Your models will be more robust and you'll be able to learn more about the problem. Um, and so having a lot of labeled data is desirable. If you can't, though, then maybe you do semi-supervised learning mm -hmm. where you have some things that are labeled, but you still try to make use of all the other data that you wouldn't, mm. weren't able to get labeled. So when you are working on a project... Do you personally analyze it from a, I'm going to use a semi-supervised system, or is it just like, this is the problem, this is what I have in regards to the problem, and that forces whether you're supervised, unsupervised, or semi-supervised? Personally, I think the second option is usually a better option. You try to select your models and the way you approach a problem based on what the realities of the problem are. Mm -hmm. um, the more realistic your assumptions are, the better the algorithms tend to work. Um, so a lot of time, you know, the, the easiest algorithms are supervised learning algorithms where you're saying, this is what I want. This is the data I have. Can I learn some mapping? I don't know that they're easy. Well, yeah, maybe conceptually straightforward. I don't know. Um, and so it could be hard sometimes to force problems into that domain. Mm -hmm. um, and it may be better to kind of try some of these other approaches. Hmm. So I guess other methods. So mm -hmm. in addition to semi-supervised, you have areas like reinforcement learning. And so from the offset, you don't label things. So an algorithm will produce an output and then you'll kind of give it a reward or hold back a reward. <laughs> just, like training. <laughs> just like training your dog, right? So you oh, give wow. it a treat when it gets the right answer and not huh. if it doesn't. And so with, How? with the idea of the algorithm learning over time with more examples. Huh. I feel like that's how I've heard about protein folding. Mm -hmm. um, 
algorithms is that that's what they're usually doing. Yeah, I don't know. It, that's what I've. I, now that you're mentioning, it, I didn't know that that's that was a thing. Yeah. But that is the only way that it can be really checked. Yeah, we can't put it. I guess there's some supervision up front of like hydrophobic regions. Yeah, need to be together, but. Uh-huh. Yeah, but give yet, these rules, and then they just look at a whole bunch of examples, and I, I think that's the one that they well, must what, use. So that kind of thing makes me think of this idea of objective functions, which is a, a big part of all of these machine learning methods. Yeah, so when I was talking about models, I was normally thinking about an objective function. But this <laughs> is an idea of you've come up with some way of calculating how good your answer is, mm-hmm. and you want your your algorithm to somehow produce answers that, you know, have maximized this objective, you know, maximize the goodness, maximize how well folded your, your protein is. And so this is all related to standard optimization theory that, that I think of as an area of, you know, industrial engineers cover that a lot, but I mean, it's pure mathematics and goes in computer science as well. There's so many applications of optimization, just Mm -hmm. mathematical optimization. So if we were going to get to a computer thinking on its own, it would have to learn its own like offset parameters. So this is this idea of of general artificial intelligence. And I guess we never really defined how machine learning fits into this idea of artificial intelligence. And so we've kind of talked about some of the ways in which machine learning works. And this is this idea of, you know, maybe given some examples, you want the computer to be able to, to, figure out the method that works well to give you the right answer in the future. Hmm. Um, you know, our general artificial intelligence is a much deeper problem than that. Generally, these machine learning problems are very constrained. Mm-hmm. This, you've got this classification problem, cat or not cat, do the best you can on it by maximizing your objective function. Um, so general AI is another thing that's had a, a long history. Machine learning is kind of one of the more recent subfields of AI artificial intelligence uh, and AI kind of goes back to at first they were just trying to do some rules mm-hmm. uh, like I was talking about earlier you know if if it's this much green then it's that and they said well maybe we can just come up with all the possible rules mm-hmm. if we think of all the possible rules of how we do these things then we'll have something that's as smart as a person uh, mm. there's other parts where they had all the the facts all the you know logic based systems uh, you know shamrocks are green uh, I don't know. This plant is green, hence this plant must be a shamrock. Right, so <laughs> following the, the rules of, of logic, you can do these you know, logical proofs and those kinds of things. So those are things that people have tried for artificial intelligence and then ways of discovering new rules and things like that. Hmm. Um, but that's you know, an artificial method of something that's kind of like intelligence. Then there's the idea of trying to reconstruct a brain. Uh, we've got some rough understanding of what this machine is inside our heads. You know, it's got these neurons, which, you know, have inputs coming in on their, their axons. I guess that's, I'm not a biologist, <laughs> but I do know a little bit about, you know, our, what we call artificial neural networks, mm-hmm. um, which are a very poor model of biological processes, but they do some interesting things. Uh, so the inputs come into the neurons and if their inputs have enough strength, then they fire their, down mm-hmm. their synapse at the other end. Mm-hmm. And you get a bunch of those wired together, interconnected in a bunch of different ways, and somehow that produces humans' conscious thought, mm-hmm. all of those things. So, yeah, so there's been 
a long history of working on artificial neural networks saying, can we mimic the way the human brain works mm -hmm. in a computer to get the same sort of. That's interesting. I've, you know, I'm kind of familiar with the idea of neural networks and all this stuff, but it hadn't occurred to me that, yeah, it is all based on what strength, what's the strength of this neuron, the signal that this neuron's getting, and then what it's sending out, and then it has to quiet itself down. I mean, it's, it's just so electrical. Yeah. And then we have a thought. <laughs> and then ding, yep. there's an output. Yep. <laughs> right. And so this was, when was, uh, when was the perceptron, Rosenblatt with the perceptron? That was. A, I, I'm not sure, but I think the 40s. 40s or, you know, that era was when they came up with some simple, uh, you know, machine, electrical machine-based models, you know, inspired by what our understanding of how, hmm. you know, neurons work in And so they mammals. started off with a single neuron. Mm -hmm. the, like the computer brain was one neuron. Yeah. Um, but of course our brains have millions upon millions of neurons. Mm -hmm. So um, so then since then... Right. Well, so, and they found that they could do some interesting computational tasks with this artificial neuron. Cool. You know, they could, you know, is, is that green level greater than 0.5? It can do that kind of thing. And it can... You know, if you fed it the, the green level on one side, it could tell you whether or not it thinks that thing's a shamrock. Right. So, so, the, so the perceptron first came out, and there was a lot of hype about it. But they came to the realization that a single neuron or a perceptron can really just draw a line and mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm. is, it, is this value bigger or less than this line? Mm -hmm. um, and when they realized that, they said, oh, well, there's a lot of problems that are a mar lot more complex than just drawing a line. Mm -hmm. um, and so it sort of fell out of favor. And I think they called the era the AI winter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but then it came back. They were able to make a lot more complex artificial neural networks and figured out ways to train those, um, which was difficult. Right. And so I guess to give more historical perspective, that kind of had a resurgence in the in probably the 90s, people were researching cool things that they could do with artificial neural networks. And a lot of this, again, I think the, the biggest example application is these kind of classification systems. Is, is it type 1 or type 2? Mm -hmm. uh, right. And, and people were using, I would say, artificial neural networks for a ton of things. So if you look back at papers from the area, neural networks were huge, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then it got less popular again. Right. And then this kind of statistical machine learning took over. So the neural network theory is not very statistical in its nature. Mm, yeah. And so they kind of figured out that, oh, well, a lot of what we're doing is perhaps we could talk about statistical distributions and probabilities. Mm. And, you know, is this thing likely to have been type two or likely to have been type one? So it's kind of just riding this wave of right. and brains now, versus <laughs> stats versus brains. Versus yeah. right. Well, I, I definitely think now they've come together a lot more, but neural nets are back in, right? right? Now <laughs> being called deep learning. <laughs> and so um, there's a, so now they're oh, bigger. It's super hip now. It's right. <laughs> so cool first it was a it. single perceptron and it went away. Then it was neural nets that were much more complex and it mm -hmm. went away. And now they're really deep nets that hmm. are really big um and right and so they figured out how to do some things like playing the game of go now oh uh, yeah yeah in the news that they have a machine based on these deep neural networks 
along with some other classical computer science uh, search-based techniques uh, to play the game of Go really well. Which so it, That's a very complex game. Yeah, like mm-hmm. I talked about with that traveling salesman problem, mm-hmm. uh, the game of Go is, is, uh, is similarly complex in that we just cannot compute the right answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, it's just too hard of a problem. There's too many possible things to check. Uh, so what they found now with the big neural networks is that they can suggest what looks like it may be a good answer and then search around in that space uh, oh, for, wow. for better answers. Cool. Kind of limits the problem, makes it, uh, yeah. bites it, bite sized problem now. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> bites it down. <laughs> okay. Well, I have, um, as we're nearing the end, one question, um, if you could briefly answer. This is kind of the first generation I guess your generation is the first generation of computer scientists or engineers that grew up with computers. Before that, people were, you know, the pioneers. Do you see a shift in your generation of scientists and engineers as a result of that? Are you guys... The kids these days, I tell you. Um, You know, I've seen, say, like our PhD advisor... Mm -hmm. uh, did not have a degree in computer science. His degree was in mathematics. Um, so you see certainly some people who come from a more mathematical background in, say, computer science departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yep. you know, everybody, I think if you're competent working in a university, you've got a good handle on the computing aspects of it. So I think the students are still learning from the masters in, in that respect. I gotcha. Cool. Okay, well... Um as we wrap up, do you have any advice for youngins who might want to... These kids these days yeah. that want to be... <laughs> they want to be you? Well, I guess um, one thing that's I've come to appreciate more and more as I've gone into this area is how valuable it is to draw connections between things. Um, so when you take a class in biology or a class in physics, and you'll start to see relationships between those and what you take in your computer science courses or other mm-hmm. areas. And you start to get like kind of a more big picture of how everything fits together and you get a deeper understanding. And I think that helps in all areas, mm-hmm. not just computer science. But So pay attention in class. Pay attention and try to think how they relate to each other. Yeah. Don't just... <laughs> cool. And I guess if you do have an interest in artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, these kinds of things, I had no conception of this beforehand, but it is an extraordinarily mathematical Field. Yeah, take pay attention in and, stats. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I I was not enthused about mathematics, even doing an engineering degree. As I started getting into the more advanced machine learning, it all kind of clicked. Like, oh, that's why they were telling me that. <laughs> so you know, if you're doing if you're an undergrad now, maybe it might motivate you to pay better attention in your calc mm-hmm. class, linear algebra especially. Hmm. All right. Well, that was the big electron. Thank you again, Dr. Zare and Dr. Glenn for being with us on part two of St. Patrick's Day slash Engineering Week. Um, Next week, we will not have a show, um, but the week after that, we'll be back. Uh, Thanks for listening on KCOU Columbia 88.1 FM.